So if you can, I want to invite you to stand. And let's read. Let's first read verses 1 through 3, and then we jump to verse 11. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Let's go to verse 11. He said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. That would be shocking for a Jew. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. But he answered his father, Look, this many years I have served you, and I never disobey your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he's alive. He was lost and is found. You can be seated. It's fascinating how Jesus ends the parable right there. Because now he's letting 
his listeners decide if they're going to join heaven or if they're going to continue joining hell. In her book, Apology, The Importance and Power of Saying I'm Sorry, the author Sheila Simpson, he describes the purpose of the book. She writes a self-help book written to increase the awareness of and the importance of a true, sincere apology. The intent in writing this book is to increase your awareness about the power that you possess to wisely decide to change your life and the lives of others by simply saying the three words, I'm sorry. This difficult action brings hope for change, growth, and renewal. In pages 17 and 18 of her book, she says, Forgiveness often flows after an apology has been extended. Sometimes forgiveness is an act of inner self-strength, a deliberate action that one takes to heal and thrive without ever receiving an apology. By definition, apology is a written or spoken admission of error, discourtesy, or regret. She goes on to say, I'm sorry is one of the most important expressions of love. Love for one's wholeness and integrity and love for the well-being of others. And we see how this whole idea of I'm sorry apology that we have in our culture permeating Christian families and churches, the language of sin is completely removed out of the vocabulary. We no longer hear about sin confession of sin, repentance, please forgive me, I have sinned against you. We don't hear that anymore. And you can hear even the parents, how the parents teach their children. When they sin, oh, go say you are sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay, buddy. It's, it's this thing that where sin is treated lightly. No longer sin. You have sinned. You need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to say that you sin against God. You sin against your sibling or your friend. In contrast to Sheila Simpson, we have Jay Adams. And I highly recommend this book of his. He says in his book, uh, the title of the book is From Forgiven to Forgiving. He says, no one knows the full history of apologizing. But the name itself gives some, something of a clue. An apology is a defense. An apologia, the Greek, was a defense made at a court trial in ancient Greece. So rather than admit wrong, apologizing originally was defending oneself against a charge of doing wrong, which of course is exactly the opposite of what confession of sin and seeking of forgiveness is all about. In time, apologizing became a milder sort of thing where typically one says, I'm sorry. But to say, I'm sorry, and to say, I sin against God and you, will you forgive me, are two very different things. Repenting of sins, asking for forgiveness, that's God's means for us to appropriate forgiveness. I'm sorry, what do you do with I'm sorry? It's even awkward when people say, I'm sorry. And sometimes people get upset with me because they say I'm sorry and I don't reply because I don't know what to say. Once you sin against me and you say I'm sorry, 
What am I supposed to say? But if you say, please forgive me, I sin against you. Now we have a transaction where I can say, yes, I forgive you. I forgive you. And the parable of the forgiving father with his two sons help us, empower us to understand forgiveness. And the pathway to forgiveness that requires repentance, confession of sins. So that's all we see in this parable. And that's my prayer that as we are trying to better understand the topic of forgiveness, the Lord will help us as we walk through this glorious parable. So the outline this morning is, we're just going to cover the first two parts. I divided this story in four parts. We have the exile of the younger son, and that's death. So you've got to think about the theology of the Bible, exile, he's leaving, he's departing, he's in exile, and that's death. That's verses 11 through 16. And then we have the exodus of the younger son. That's life. Exodus is life, resurrection, verses 17 through 28. And then next Lord's Day, we continue by looking at the forgiveness of the father and then the exile and unforgiveness of the older son. Okay? So that's my plan. So as we come to Luke chapter 15, just a word of context, and you see why Jesus is telling this parable here. And as you come to Luke 15 in the Gospel of Luke, the hostility, the hate towards Christ is increasing. Now he's on his journey to Jerusalem where he will be crucified by these people who hate him. They cannot handle Jesus. And one of the reasons why they cannot handle Jesus Christ and, and they want him dead, we can see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors, and you know the tax collectors, hated, especially because most of them were Jews, who became servants of Rome to get taxes from other Jews to support the Romans. So Jews hated the tax collectors because they were seen as people who sold their souls to Rome. And they, of course, would add into the taxation so they could make profit. And then the sinners there, you have now the tax collectors and sinners. The sinners should be in quotes because that's how they call these people. Sinners were people who did not match the standard of righteousness of the Pharisees. So anybody who did not fit their standard of righteousness was called what? A sinner. And there were a bunch of people who fit into this category of sinners. And th these people are coming to Jesus and he's eating with them. And eating is important because eating is a sign of fellowship. To be eating with someone means that you accept this person. You have friendship. You have fellowship. And they're complaining about that, that Jesus is eating. He's having fellowship with this type of people. No one should be having fellowship with these people. But Jesus, and that's important to keep in mind, that, that Jesus is having meals and he's eating with these sinners, but they all have repented of their sins. Amen? You don't see Jesus eating with people in order to endorse their sinful behavior. He's always having fellowship with those who uh, came to him to, in repentance. Jesus is a friend of sinners who repent. Repentant sinners. That's very important. Because I have seen so much error with this. So people say, oh, we need to go to the nightclubs. We need to go to all sorts of immoral places because Jesus was a friend of sinners. 
Well, we got to go and drink whiskey and get drunk with them to be like Jesus. And that has nothing to do with what Jesus was doing. He never endorsed sin. And the people who he had fellowship were those who repent of their sins and come to him by faith. Amen? So that's very important. So it's in light of this anger, unbelief that Jesus, this, this, this man who is a rabbi performing these good deeds, now he's welcoming this sinners and they're grumbling they're murmuring that jesus is going to tell a parable that's the context so he told them this parable verse three and a parable from the name parabole is to throw something and there's something parallel so jesus would tell a story and this story had a different a more profound meaning underneath and the parables were weapons of war for jesus a lot of times we, we treat parables as this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, as if anybody could understand. But many of Jesus' parables were actually weapons of war. So some of the parables would harden people's hearts, while other parables would enlighten people to understand and behold who God is in the kingdom of God. And this parable is not different. It's a weapon of war. It's a weapon of controversy. He's saying what is happening with the kingdom. He's telling them what's going on in heaven as the sinners and tax collectors are repenting. There is joy. And then he's throwing on them. How about you guys? So it's a weapon. How about you? Are you celebrating like in heaven? Or you're bitter like Satan? Angry, unforgiving. So, and you see that Jesus says parable. That's in the singular. And then you go and you find three stories, right? Look in your Bibles. Verse 3. So he told them this parable. And that's in the singular. But then he say, why are there three stories if he's using the singular? Why? Because it's one major parable with three sub-stories. But it's one main theme. It's one main story. We call the, the parable of the lost sheep. The lost coin, the prodigal son. And I think it's kind of messed up how we always label as in the negative. Because the whole purpose is the positive. The whole purpose is that there was found and there was celebration. Was found and there was celebration. There was found and there was celebration. It should be the, the found sheep, the found coin, and the found son. Or the finding father. So, and, and we see as a trilogy or one major symfo symphony playing this beautiful song. Uh, and there are notes here that keep playing in these three stories forming this major parable. So we see the, the found sheep and the found coin. When you contrast with the parable of the father, we, we see the same thing. The, the theme of being lost. The theme of being found. A sinner who repents and then joy. So what we find in the first two parables, it's demonstrating the third one, the third story, bringing to uh, a, a beautiful theme. And, and if I could just say, okay, what is these three stories? What is this parable all about? I would say that this parable, the main theme is the joyful collision, the joyful collision that there is between a forgiving, the forgiving heart of God and a repentant sinner. So when a repentant sinner turns away and he comes towards God, the forgiving heart of God collides with the sinner and you have this festivity, you have this explosion of joy in heaven. So that's the main theme of this 
parable here, just three stories. So let's move on and start our journey through this glorious parable. The Xiah of the younger son. So in verse 11, we read, And Jesus said, There was a man, and he had two sons. We often call this parable what? The parable of the prodigal son. But the problem is not about the prodigal son. This parable is primarily about the man who has two sons. He's in the heart of this story. It's the father who is representing Jesus, welcoming the sinners. So the main character here is the father, not the son. So that's why I named uh, the forgiving father and his two sons. Because he is the main character here. And it says, And the younger of them, verse 12, And the younger of his two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And this younger son, who was probably pretty young and he's not married yet, he cannot wait for his father to die. He cannot wait for his father's death. He wants his inheritance now. And what he's saying is, I wish you were dead, father. But since you're not dead and buried, you're dead to me. Just give me what is mine. And that's shocking. That's shocking. Scholars say that's more shocking is that the father did not beat him in front of everybody once he makes this declaration, this petition. One scholar says the Lord's audience would have expected the father to discipline the boy for such a cruel demand. So it's shocking, the request, and it's shocking that the father does not do what we were expecting. Actually, it says, and he divided his property between them. <sighs> and that's something that we see with God. That many times what he does is he gives people over to their sinful desires. Is that what you want? That's what you're going to have. Do you remember the Israelites? <laughs> we want the food from Egypt. Oh, you want that? You're going to have so much that's going to start coming out of your nostrils, your ears, your mouths. Look at Portland. Portland, right by us. Keep Portland weird. Keep Portland weird. Oh, that's what you want? And then Portland becomes so weird that people start leaving. It's too weird for me now. Romans 1. God gives people to their sinful desires. And that's what the Lord is doing here. So he gives them over. I was culturally expected that either the father would beat the son, or he would say, huh, actually... I'm going to remove you out of the inheritance. But actually the father does. He lets the son drown in his own sinful desire. So read in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his wealth in reckless living. So now the son abandons the family. He abandons the land and he abandons the community. He's literally repudiating all that's honorable in that culture. Family, land, and community. 
in our Western culture, it's pretty normal for younger people to leave the house to pursue their work or their career. That was not so, and it's not so still in the Eastern culture. So for a son to do that, to get his things and abandon everyone, and especially in the context of a Jewish family where the land is so important, the holy land that God had promised, for him to leave there is just shameful to the whole family. That would be dishonoring, embarrassing for everyone. Instead of staying there and then helping with the family, he just wants to do his own thing. So we read, uh, he, squen he squandered his wealth, I like what the NIV says, in reckless living, the ESV says, reckless living. The reckless here, that's where we got, you get prodigal, prodigal. Coming from the Latin, prodigus, or prodigus, prodigalis. And the idea is to be extravagant, spending money lavishly, recklessly. The Greek word, asotos, is related to reckless abandon, debauchery, dissipation. So different translations have different ways of interpreting here. The NIV says wild living. That's a good one. The New King James has the in a prodigal living. The NAS has loose living. The Homan has foolish living. So it's all pictured the idea of this lifestyle. And we read uh, not many days later, he got all his things and he took a journey to a far country, far away from the land of God, far away from God's presence. And here is a picture of Adam and Israel having all the blessings, and yet rejecting, despising, and going to exile. So we need to picture here this young man, as he has all his things, now he's probably trying to get coins and cash, so it's easier to travel, and getting all his, his the things he has, and putting, loading on a donkey or on a camel, and now he starts his journey, his journey, and we need to think in biblical terms, his journey is east, departing, departing from God's presence. He's doing just like Adam, just like Cain, just like the people in the Tower of Babel, just like Israel when taken into captivity, going far away from God's presence, from blessings, from the smiling face of God. So he departs, and we read in verse 14, Remember the Pilgrim's Progress, Vanity Fair? That's where he's heading, Vanity Fair. And we read, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And famine is, when you read the scriptures, famine is God's judgment upon that land. So here's God bringing judgment. And he began to be in need. He spent all his money. Proverbs 21, 17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will become what? Poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. Meaning what? The wine, the olive oil, they would go to a party and you'd put the oil and the drinking. Just spending your money foolishly. That's the picture. So a process of desperate need starts to take place here. He's lacking basic necessities. He doesn't have food, running out of money. And once you come to this point, you start doing things that you never imagined that you do. 
How many people that we know that got involved with drugs, alcohol? And then they need, they need the last one, the last one. And suddenly they sold everything that they had. People never imagined, you never imagined that they would be now homeless, wandering around without family, without any sort of comfort. Why? Squandered living, just wasting everything. And we read in verse 15, So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens, and that's a Gentile person of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. If, if you are a Jew listening to this, you'd be shocked. You can't believe that he's doing that. The word kolal speaks of joining together. He's clinging to a Gentile, almost like a slave. I, I need you. I need you. I don't have anything. And it's the polite way in the Middle East to get rid of somebody that you don't want is you offer something that you know that he's going to refuse to do. So that's what his friend is doing here. Oh, man, I need you. I need you. And the friend is like, I don't want this guy around. I don't want this guy around. Oh, I know what you can do. I'd love to have you. He knows he's a Jew. Hey, you're going to take care of the pigs. Expecting what? Oh, by no means, not the pigs. Actually, he takes the job. Desperate situation, desperate actions. And this is repulsive to a Jewish, Jewish audience. Uh, there was, in the Talmud, it says, Cursed is the man who raises swine, the man who raises pig, and cursed is the man who teaches his son Greek philosophy. That's how the Jews would see that. Why? Greek philosophy? Departing from the Torah instead of focusing the Torah of Moses. And that's how disgusting that would be for a man to be raising pigs. I like what Garland says. He helps us to understand here. He says, pigs were unclean animals. To eat swine's flesh was means to get Jews to renounce their faith. This explains the curse in the Talmud. Cursed be the man who keeps swine and cursed the man who teaches his son Greek wisdom. He says, the younger son seemingly has passed the point of no return. Like the tax collectors and sinners who also seem irretrievably lost to Israel. That's where he is. It seems like there is no point. He, this man is in the graveyard. He's dead. Verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. You see, the degradation reached a new level. It's not just that he's taking care of pigs. That would be abominable. He, he's able to go even lower than that. And he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating. That's how low you go. And, and that's what sin does. Sin doesn't stop. There's no neutrality with sin. Sometimes we think, oh, he's just... You know, sin is always dragging you lower and lower. Sin never stops. It's always dragging you deeper and deeper into your grave. And then we read, and no one gave him anything. That's what sin does. Sin leaves you alone. 
alone in your grave. Different from our culture, there was no begging or state welfare provision for foolish people. Foolish people in those days, <laughs> that's your problem. So he is in need. Different from our state where they support financially foolish people with our own money. They take our money and give it to foolish people. No, he, he's lost here. He's as good as dad. And that's what sin does. Sin destroys relationships. Think about him from living with his family and friends in a good place to now being alone with pigs. That's just what sin does. Sin destroys our relationship with God, with others. And honestly, that's a picture of what sin does to all of us. I like what J.C. Ryle writes. He says, We have in these words a faithful portrait of the mind with which we all are born. This is our likeness apart from Christ. We are all naturally proud and self-willed. We have no pleasure in fellowship with God. We long to depart and go far away from Him. We spend our time and strength and faculties and affections on things that cannot profit. Like sheep, we all naturally go astray and turn everyone to his own way. In the younger son's initial conduct, we see the natural heart of every man. That's depravity. And we need to, as we look, at, as, as we behold these two sons, we, we must be aware that there can be something of both sons in us. We are conceived in sin. Even Christian parents, they produce little sinners. And we all need God's grace to change our hearts and give repentance of sins. And that's what we're going to see now. It starts to take place with this man. An exodus is about to take place. A resurrection exodus. The exile is about to be over. So you read in verse 17... But when he came to his senses. But. How we love the buts of the Bible. Amen. But God who is rich in mercy. But when he came to his senses. And to come to your senses is the picture of repentance. It's, it's coming to realize where you are. And how needy you are of God's grace. He's having a psychological crisis here. Uh, it, it made me think about King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, I believe, when he so arrogant, so proud, and the Lord drives him to dwell with whom? With the animals. He's behaving just like a beast, not recognizing the Lord. And then it says, when he came to his senses... He gave all the glory to the God of Daniel. So, we must have a realization of how dead, how deplorable, how hellish is our situation away from God's presence in order for us to find forgiveness. And that's what's starting to take place here. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many, going back here, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread 
but I perish here with hunger. He's thinking about the abundance of God, of his father's benevolence. My father is rich in kindness. My father is rich in goodness towards his people. That the same word here, have more than enough, is the word for abundance. It's used in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 8. Just read to you. It says, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished abundantly. Lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So what is happening with the son here? What is he thinking about? What is he thinking about? The goodness of his father. He's thinking about the kindness of his father. That's what Paul says. It's the goodness of God that leads us to uh, to repentance. And that's what's starting to take place here. He's thinking about the goodness, the kindness, the love, the grace, the mercy that there is in his father's heart. Repentance is God's gift that enables the sinner to come to his senses. Sin blinds us and makes us foolish, but God's grace empowers us to see how deplorable and miserable our situation is away from Him. And here's the beauty and the complexity of repentance. Repentance is required from sinners, and yet at the same time, repentance is given to sinners. We can never forget that the repentance is a gift. We saw in Acts chapter 5. It's a gift. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to do what? To give repentance. Look at Acts 11. When they heard these things, verse 18, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has what? Granted repentance that leads to life. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. 2 Timothy 2.24-25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents when, with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Well, you've got to keep in mind, that's a... Uh, that, that's something so glorious. It's a gift of God. He requires for us, just like faith. He requires for us. And yet he gives. That's the power of the gospel. So he says in verse 18, I will arise. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And the picture here is literally a resurrection. The word for arise, the same Greek word for being resurrected, being raised. And that's the picture. He's just coming out of the grave. He's coming out of his deathbed. And look how he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. What is heaven? Who is in heaven? God. Heaven is a synonym for, for God. I have sinned against God. Every sin is first of all against God. That's why David, when he's confronted by Nathan, he sinned, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against the whole Israel. And yet he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Because the primary agent 
of our offense is God. We sin against God, first of all. And that's why he says, I have sinned. I have sinned against God and against you. Notice that he doesn't say, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry, Dad. That was bad. So much of apology today is superficial with excuses. He's not minimizing anything here. He's maximizing his own faults, his sins. True repentance has no excuses, only confession and a humble request. He actually used the S word, sin, that we don't hear very often. Sin. Forgiveness requires the confession of sin. We hear, oh, I'm sorry that you feel this way. That's no repentance at all. I have sinned against God and against you. And look how he says, I'm no longer, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. True humility, brokenness, contrition, all here. He wants to be a hired servant. And that's interesting. He's not, called, he's, he's not asking to be a slave, a dolos. He's asking to be a mystios. And there is a difference between a hired servant and a slave. And here's what is interesting. He wants to be a hired servant. Why? Because he needs to pay restitution. I need to make money to pay you back. Besides that, a slave, you bring to your home and you feed a slave. And he say, I'm not, I don't even want to be this burden to you. You don't need to feed me. I want to work for you. Get out of your presence. So I can pay back what I did to you. When a scholar says, the son's request shows that he wants to be a minimal burden. He's prepared to be the lowest of the low. So you read in verse 20. Here's the power of the gospel. And he arose. He got up. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel not only calls us. The gospel calls us to repent. Amen? But the gospel also gives us the power to repent. So he got up and he went. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus gives us feet, gives us legs, gives us muscles, bones, tendons to do what? To walk. To do what God is calling us to do. And that's all we see him doing here. So he got up and he goes. Now he's walking the road of sacrifice. The painful road of humility that shows true repentance. See, it's not enough to feel guilty. So many people feel guilt. Sorrow for things that they did. So many people do that. But it's not enough. It's not enough to have contrition. You need to show that through actions of repentance and confession of sin. In hell right now, and there will be millions and millions and millions of people who are feeling guilt and they felt bad for their sins. But they never did anything about that. It's not enough. It's not enough. Because oftentimes we feel sorry and feel bad actually because there are consequences for us. Remember in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian has that burden. But he needs to do something with that burden. He can't just carry around. He needs to take to the cross. And that's what I see this man doing. David Garland, he says, 
un- until the son rises and returns home, his reconciliation with his father will be impossible. Therefore, remorse must be combined with action. The younger son's rising is the beginning of his transformation from death to life. The Hebrew word for repentance is what? To turn, shuv, to turn, to return. Why? Because you're turning away from your sins and you're returning to God. That's the picture. Turning away from sin to turn to God, to God's presence. So, we see the pathway, the pathway for forgiveness is broken as repentance. There is no forgiveness of sins until there is true repentance and confession of sins. John says that if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us. And through the actions of the younger son, we see what true repentance looks like. You've got to get this, this parable here and compare it with the book of Jonah. That's what we have here in the book of Jonah is just fully matching in God's revelation. The Ninevites repent. Do you remember Jonah chapter 3? The word reached the king, pierces his heart. Suddenly he's throwing himself into dust and ashes, removing his robe, crying out for a fasting. He says, who knows? Who knows the Lord will have mercy on us and relent? That's true repentance. Casting yourself at God's mercy. And that's what he's doing. I'm just going to cast myself at my father's feet. I like what J.C. Ryle says. He says, feelings and tears and remorse and wishes and resolutions are all useless until they are followed by action and a change of life. In fact, they are worse than useless. Insensibly, they sear the conscience and harden the heart. Repentance requires the death of the old self. You don't come with your own ways when you're asking for forgiveness, when you need to repent. You don't, you don't try to stipulate the, the ways you, you need to be forgiven and restore the relationship. When you're truly repentant, you just cast yourself at the mercy of the one whom you sin against. And that's exactly what he's doing here. True repentance has no rights to claim. Look how he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's what true repentance looks like. So much of the apology today is, I'm sorry, but you also did that. You know, yes, I know I did, but you. See, the son could be saying, yes, father, I know I was wrong. I'm sorry, but you were very unloving that day. But you could have said no to me. It's always these apologies. I'm sorry, but hey, you. No, true repentance that leads to true forgiveness has this merciful action of just casting yourself and say, I, I deserve nothing. I have sinned. Please forgive me. Garland says, Repentance, therefore, requires stooping low which is infinitely costly to self-esteem. It requires a change of thinking and acting and a renunciation of previous intentions and deeds. Anyone who calculates, oh, I will sin and repent, I will sin and repent, 
Because we hear that, oh, it's God's business to forgive. Huh. It says we will not receive forgiveness. It requires painful confession that does not presume on the Father's forgiveness and heaven's remission of sin. Also, it requires the recognition that forgiveness cannot be earned. You cast yourself at His mercy. And the beautiful thing is that He has a large, merciful, and forgiving heart. So we start seeing that the pathway to forgiveness, to true forgiveness, to true reconciliation, has this painful road of repentance and confessions of sins. We sang here earlier, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And then what the chorus says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And what do we see next? And he rises and goes. What happens? The Lord comes. And you have this beautiful collision of the repentant sinner and the forgiving God. Embracing him in his arms. And that's what we see in the gospel. All those who come to him in repentance in humility, confessing their sins, he will not cast away. He embraces in his arms. Oh, the glorious joy of finding forgiveness in Christ. The gospel not only has the invitation to come and repent, but the gospel also provides the power to repent and come. And not only once, but throughout our, our whole lives. The gospel keeps empowering us daily to keep repenting, asking for forgiveness. And also keeps empowering to forgive those who come in humility asking for forgiveness. That's what the gospel does. When a, when a sinner repents of his sins and runs to God, he collides with the forgiving heart of our God. And as we shall see, producing an explosion of joy and festivity in heaven itself. So the call is, rise up. Rise up and go to Jesus. Rise up and go to Jesus. Confess your sins and He will embrace you. That's His promise. Amen. Father, we, we thank You for feeding us Your Word, how we need to be fed by You, Lord. Help us as we are walking through this beautiful story. I pray you'd help us with sinful familiarity. Help us to behold your truth. Help us to be refreshed by this truth. Help us to be molded and transformed by your word. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for bringing so many of us here into our senses and realizing how deplorable our lives are without you. And giving us a heart of flesh and having the, the gospel to give us feet to run to Christ and, in, and find forgiveness in His arms. And for those here, Lord, those here, there are those here that right now they don't know You. They are in their sins. And I just pray that Your gospel change their hearts. That today, today, 
would be the day that not, they're not just saying, oh, we will arise, oh, we will arise, oh, we will, but that they would rise up and go to you, Lord. Help us to, con- to, to live a life of continually repenting and coming to you, Lord. Deliver, deliver us from hardness of heart. And thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for changing our minds. Oh, Lord, how glorious was that day when we came to our senses and realized how lost we were apart from you. And you brought us life from the graveyard of sin. And we came to your arms and we found forgiveness. Oh, Lord, the joy, the bliss. Thank you. Thank you for forgiving us much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.